It's good to be with you this morning. We're going to be back in Hebrews chapter 11 in just a few moments, but how many of you to start, how many of you got to spend some time at the ocean this summer by show of hands? All right, good bit of you. I'm going to assume that everybody else has at least been down the shore, as we say here in Philadelphia. By the way, it took me a number of years when I moved here to understand what that meant, but I think I'm fluent now. I'm assuming we all know what the ocean is like. One of the things that I love about the ocean is the power, the immensity, the greatness of it. But when you think about the power of the ocean, people respond in different ways to it. For some, that greatness, that power is, is terrifying. The riptides, the, the fact that when you're out in the middle of it, you can't see the bottom of it, which <laughs> kind of sends shivers down my spine. I hate that because you don't know what's under there. There's all these animals that are kind of creepy and Shark Week doesn't help. But now Shark Week, anybody notice that Shark Week's not a week anymore? It's like always Shark Week. Um, for some, that greatness is a terror. But for others, they see that potential danger, and yet there's something that's beautiful about it that draws them closer, that causes millions of people to just go sit on the edge of the ocean, to go play in it, to go boating on it, to go on cruises out into the middle of it, to just sit and stare at it. It just settles us. Something about its greatness actually draws us closer. Because when we come face to face with greatness, with power, with, with true awesomeness, you're either pushed away and you want to recoil in fear, or it draws you in. And that's not just true of something like the ocean. That's actually the way that the Bible describes many people's responses and reactions to the greatness of God. And the way that the Bible treats that and describes both of those reactions, which seem opposite, is with one word, and that word is fear. It uses the word fear to describe both the positive and the negative reaction to the greatness of God encountering Him. And so to understand a little bit more of that, we're going to go into Hebrews chapter 11, because that's where our passage is going to take us this morning. And as you're opening your Bibles to Hebrews 11, verse 31, just quickly remind you that this whole summer we have been walking through Hebrews chapter 11. Because the, the preacher of Hebrews, that's what Hebrews is, is a, a transcribed sermon that was preached. The, the, the preacher of Hebrews is trying to reinforce that we are reconciled to God by faith in Jesus. And that, that idea of faith is what Hebrews 11 is camped out on and is showing us through highlighting different men and women throughout all of Scripture who are examples, who demonstrate this is what faith looks like. And we've been taking them one at a time throughout this whole summer. And we're seeing that, that we're looking at men that, that, that you would expect to be in this. Men like Abraham and, and maybe even Jacob and Moses and Joseph and last week Joshua, these men who are really well known. And today we go in a little bit of a different direction. It goes to someone whom the original hearers or the readers of this recorded sermon would have kind of tilted their head at. Really? That person? Because this person was a woman. And in this day, that would have been very unusual to highlight a woman as a, an object of faith. 
as a demonstration of faith. Not only is she a woman, she's a Canaanite. She's the very people that were in the way. That She was a, a pagan, a foreigner. And not only that, she was a prostitute. She's got three strikes, three major strikes as to why would she be used in this passage as an example of faith. But that's where we are this morning, and I think it's actually for, I know it's for our good and for our edification that the, the writer of Hebrews, the, the preacher here, highlights Rahab. Hebrews 11, verse 31 says this, By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Short little passage this morning. One verse, lots of hope for us in it. Before we actually get into the specifics and talk about Rahab's story, one thing that kind of jumps off of this to me, and I don't know if it does to you, is that this, if you look at the first part of that passage, by faith, Rahab is contrasted by those in Jericho who are disobedient. That doesn't really seem like the contrasting pair I would have assumed. And actually, if you might have a footnote in your Bible that says at the, at the bottom there where it says disobedient, it also has a note that says disbelieving, unbelieving. Does that seem a little strange to us? Because in our world, we don't think about obedience and faith as a pair. See, our, our, our world around us is trying to kind of push some distance between what we believe just as in our inward thinking and our actual lived out lives. The world is trying to say, keep your faith private. Don't let it inform your decisions. That has nothing to do with your actions. You think what you want. Faith is just thinking. The problem is that's not biblical faith. The, the, the reason that this, that this word can be translated either way, is this unbelieving or is this disobedient? And the answer is, why would you try to separate those two? They can't be separated. In fact, this is one of the main themes that you run all the way through Hebrews 11. It's by faith Abraham did. By faith Moses' parents did. Moses did. Jo Joshua did. All these people, there is an action. There is an action of obedience that is paired with faith. They're synonyms, actually. There cannot be faith that does not demonstrate itself in obedience. And true obedience is always rooted in faith. They are a pair that cannot be separated. And we do ourselves a disservice to think that intellectual agreement is what faith is. If that's where you are today, if you understand faith as being something you can compartmentalize in your life, something you can just put over here and engage when you feel like it and have areas where you can disengage from it, I'm sorry, that's not biblical faith. Biblical faith always works its way out and expresses itself in obedience. As Christians, we from start to finish live a life of faith, taking what it is that God has said, trusting it, believing it, allowing that truth to be embodied in our actions, in the way that we submit ourselves to what God has called us to do as we walk in trust. We are an active people. We cannot make this a private thing. This is really hard because for many of us, obedience is like a four-letter word. You just don't say that. We don't want to talk about that. And yes, we can, we can err on the side of, of legalistic 
thinking that our obedience is going to impress God. But obedience is a good word. It's a beautiful word. The commands that God gives us are not for your burden, but every command that God has given to you is for your joy and for your flourishing. God wants what's best. In fact, it's not, us, it's not being enslaved. Now I have to obey God. In fact, what it is, is it's freedom. You weren't able to obey God before Christ. You were enslaved to your own sinful desires. and There was nothing you could do. But in Christ, by faith, you have been united with him and you have been freed from enslaved to only doing your own desires that literally lead to death. And now you're called to step into obedience where Jesus says, my burden is light. It's for your joy. It's for your life. Obedience is not a bad word. As we're called to, to love our neighbor, as we're called to give, not just out of reluctance, but, but sacrificially with joy, as we're called to confess our sins, serve one another, share the good news of Christ in our words and with our actions, all of those commands are not optional. They're not, but they're also not a burden. They're for your joy. And we see that through Rahab. In fact, the book of James actually highlights this idea and uses Rahab as the same example in James chapter 2 to say that faith without works, without accompanying demonstrations of obedience is not faith, it's dead. And Rahab, as we'll see here in a moment, shows us and demonstrates what that real faith is, as have every man and woman in Hebrews 11. But the question to me is why Rahab? What is it about Rahab's story that highlights a unique facet, a unique perspective, something that we can understand more of who God is and more of what faith means? What is it about Rahab? Because every man and woman in, in, in Hebrews 11 has a unique story that gives us a unique perspective. So why Rahab? I think Rahab, as we're going to see in a moment, speaks to the motivation and speaks to fear. Fear that is both good and bad, like the ocean. So you're in Hebrews 11 with me. I'm going to ask you to go with me to Joshua chapter 2. Because just like we have all summer, Hebrews gives us the Cliff Notes version of the fuller story that's recorded for us in the Old Testament. You get the Cliff Notes version, assuming we can import the full story. The problem is uh, we don't always know the full story, and we're not going to assume that we know the full story. Which, by the way, is a little aside. That's why I'm so excited that we as a church are reading through Scripture together. Uh, because we need to keep, this is our story. We want to keep running back through this over and over again. So if you think that uh, reading through the Bible in a year is good and we've done it, yes, but we're going to do it again in 2022. That's not a, it's not a one and done thing. In fact, if you've dropped off on that, we're coming into the book of Matthew on Wednesday, so you can jump right into it with us in the New Testament. But Joshua chapter 2. Up to this point in Israel's history, God has called Israel. He's redeemed them out of Egypt. He's brought them out of slavery and brought them to the edge of the promised land, this land that he has promised to give them, Canaan. The problem is other people are living in the land that God has given to Israel. And last week, Bill walked us through the story of Jericho's defeat, how the Lord began to bring uh, Israel into that land of promise. 
and how he called the people of Israel to walk by faith, literally walk around this fortress of Jericho. And as they faithfully obeyed and trusted what God said, the walls fell down and God provided for his people. Alongside that story of the defeat of Jericho runs this story that we're going to look at in Joshua 2, which is the salvation of Rahab. So here's Joshua chapter 2. It starts off with Joshua sending two spies to look out the land, to check out the land, especially Jericho. And verse 1 says that they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. And at dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly and you may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax that she had laid out on the roof. And so the men sent out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Now, for many of us, that's the narrative that we know, we are very familiar with. You've heard that story before. And while I think we rightly love that story and kind of the drama that's unfolding there, there's a lot of questions that I have, questions that the Scripture doesn't actually answer. Because the point isn't necessarily that part. What it wants us to focus on is why Rahab did that. Why did she take these giant risks in the face of potential treason, aiding and abetting the, the, the enemy? <clears throat> why would she do that? That's why the focus comes starting in verse 8 from this dialogue she has. Before the spies, verse 8, <clears throat> excuse me, lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. And when we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. And the story goes on, you can read it later this afternoon, of the, the details of how Rahab and these two spies from Israel make an agreement. And Rahab turns uh, and, and helps the men escape through the window of her house, which is a part of the wall. And as a result, as we saw last week after the defeat of Jericho, as a result of this agreement they made, Rahab and all who were in her family were spared and their lives were saved. I think Rahab's statements are incredibly important. For most of the Bible is told from a perspective of Israel. Here's Israel's view on things. But here you actually get an outsider's view. You get to see what it is that the Canaanites thought about the nation that was coming on their doorstep, threatening them. 
And the word is fear. You see it several times in this passage, don't you? They're terrified. Word about who God is has spread. He says, hey, we heard about what happened to the Red Sea. By the way, that was 40 plus years ago. We heard then about what happened maybe what was a few weeks ago to Sihon and Og, these Amorite kings. In other words, these are the bookends of God's deliverance and up to where they were now. Canaanites are saying, we've seen what God has done for you. His greatness, His power, that He rules over the land and the sea, over all the peoples. He's not a regional God. And they were terrified. Terrified so that they start bolting the the gates shut, chasing down spies, freaking out, trying to kill the spies. They are afraid. But Rahab's in the exact same city. These are her people. She's faced with the exact same scenario. But something about her response is very, very different. Something about the presence, the nearness of this great and glorious God had the opposite effect on her. Instead of pushing her away in terror, it drew her closer. Which the way the Bible describes that is actually fear as well. And I'll tell you what I mean by that in just a minute. But Rahab first makes this incredible declaration of faith. She says, For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. This is her profession of faith in Yahweh. And I say Yahweh because if you look in your text, every time she talks, she uses the special name for God that he revealed himself to the people of Israel, first to Moses. You see it in your Bible as capital L, small capital O, small capital R, small capital D, Lord. But when it's written that way, it's our way in English of identifying that this is God's special covenant-keeping name. She is using this relational name between her and God. There are other ways you could just say God. You could say the word Elohim, and it just means generic gods. And actually, that's used by both believers and non-believers. But overwhelmingly, when the word Yahweh is used, it is invoked as this relational, I trust Him. It's used by believers. And Rahab makes this profession of faith that says, I, in, in the face of potential treason, in the face of all of the kind of peer pressure and everywhere, everything that's going on in her world, she says, the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth below. And the presence of greatness actually draws her in and she surrenders, moves in this act of obedience. She says that I know that this land belongs to you. In fact, I'm going to show you that by saying that my house belongs to you. And she uses her home, surrendering it to God's people. Rather than trying to kill the spies, she hides the spies. Rather than trying to bar the gates, she turns the window of her house into a gate that she lets the spies out through. Very different response. One author put it this way, the fear of God either hardens sinners further in their unbelief or graciously calls them to believe. Everyone in that city was afraid, but Rahab's fear caused her to cast herself on the Lord in his mercy. Both of these people, even though the actions went very differently, were both motivated by fear. 
but they're very two clearly distinct, different types of fear. Let me tell you a bit more about why I keep using fear in two different ways. One example that puts this together would be found in Exodus 20, verse 20. This is a part of the Scripture where God has brought Israel to the foot of Mount Sinai, and He's about to give them His law. And the presence of God descends on the top of Mount Sinai, and it's terrifying. It's powerful. It's great. It's an earthquake. It's fire consuming the mountain, smoke all over it, a loud trumpet sound. Everybody's… it's crazy. And Moses says to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you so that the fear of God may be with you and keep you from sinning. Do not fear, but fear God. And you're like, what? I wish I could like try to nerd out with Hebrew and tell you that it was like, oh, well, they're different. No, it's the same. Don't be afraid, but fear God. Don't fear, but fear. And it's like, what is he talking about? Clearly, he's talking about it in two different ways. There's a good fear, and there is a bad fear. But then again, as you read the rest of Scripture, you see this pattern all over the place. One of the most common phrases, one of the most common commands that that God gives His people is, don't be afraid. And yet, as you read Psalms and Proverbs and throughout all the prophets, you find that the problem was they didn't fear the Lord. And we're called to fear. The Proverbs and Psalms talk about the fear of the Lord is a really good thing. It's the beginning of wisdom. One leads to terror and is afraid, and that's bad fear. So we're called to not. The other is good fear, which leads to obedience and is an expression of faith. Here's maybe a helpful way to understand the difference. Two of the most common, important descriptions of who God is is that God is holy and God is love. God is holy. He is unique. He is the definition of awesomeness, of power, of beauty. He is far above us and beyond us. We cannot comprehend Him. He is all-powerful, all-knowing. He is everything. He is the creator and sustainer of everything that we see and and that is. In the same way, a really helpful illustration of this would be the sun. The sun is holy in our solar system. It's unique and it's powerful. I'm reminded every time I step outside how powerful the sun is because from 94 million miles away, it can burn my skin in a second. And yet... With all that power, we need the sun. It's a source of life for us. Can't do without it. But it's awesome and it's great, and you can't get too close to it. It can be potentially dangerous. God is holy. He is the supreme ruler of this universe who demands loyalty and trust. And God is love. He is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger. He overflows in love and delights to forgive sinners. There's no one like Him. In His greatness, we're drawn to Him. Good, holy fear is when we take the holiness of God and the love of God and hold them together at the same time. 
when we recognize the greatness of God and that He uses His greatness in our favor, that He loves us, that He loves to bless and to serve. When we hold those together, we come into a right perspective of who we are before God. We're humbled, we're in awe, and we're drawn to Him. Bad fear becomes when we drop either one of those. If we try to keep His holiness and we forget that God loves us and that He's for us, God becomes a terrifying thing. And we live in this constant shakiness in front of Him. Did I do enough? We, we might do outward conformity. We might modify our behavior to, to look like we're doing the right things, but that's not true obedience. True obedience involves the heart motive as well. And so what we'll end up doing as we move into that version of bad fear is it looks like this, I better read my Bible or God will be mad at me. I better give a little bit of money. I better do some good things because if I don't, well, God's going to be disappointed with me which disappointment is a version of wrath. It's going to be angry, where we feel like God is just hanging over us, just ready to whack us, and our obedience is joyless. And if that's where you are, you have forgotten, you have, you have dropped the love of God, and you're holding on to His holiness alone. That turns into bad fear. On the other side, if you take God's love and you forget His holiness and His awesomeness and His power, then now His, His commands become optional. And when you diminish God's power, the problem is something will always fill that void. Something else will fill that vacuum as the most holy, important thing in your life. And for many of us, it often becomes not fear of God, but now it becomes fear of man. Where I feel influenced by everyone around me and, and, well, I don't want to, I'm paralyzed but now what, by what others will think of me. We're afraid to let ourselves be known. We're afraid to confess our sin because if you actually knew what I was like, you would reject me. You would judge me and that would just crush me. We're called to engage and love our neighbors and, and be ambassadors of God and sharing the good news, but that's going to make me look a little weird and so I'm not going to do that. And if I give too sacrificially, it'll change my lifestyle, and then my neighbors will think that I don't have enough, and they'll look different at me, and it's just going to be… You, you see where that goes. We don't step out in faith to try something that we know the Lord is calling us because we might fail, and failure will look bad. And the list could just keep going on and on. Plenty of ways that bad fear takes over in our life. I think the question is really where… Do you experience that in your life? Where does fear have a grip on you? Bad fear. Fear of what others think or actual terror of God himself that if you step out of line, God is ready to whack you. This is where when we find ourselves face to face with that experience, when we start to have revealed the fear, the bad fear that is in our lives. We all know what that's like. The question is, how do you grow in good fear? How do we become free from the fear of man or the fear, terror of God? 
That answer forces us to look at the person of Jesus at the cross. Because it's at the cross where we find that the holiness of God, God's wrath against sin, His perfection demands that sin be dealt with. And yet His love meets perfectly. So where God would look at us and rather bear the wrath against sin in Himself than to crush you. As we come to the cross over and over again, we can't grow in holy fear by just focusing on ourselves. We have to get our eyes off of ourselves and on to Christ, the one who bore the wrath of our rebellion in himself so that you can be free, that you can be free from sin, that you can be free from fear in order to fear. That that all, that respect, that love joins into God's holiness. And this is why as we go back to Rahab, it's so important that you see that out of the eight times that Rahab is mentioned in Scripture, out of the eight times her name is dropped, five times the word prostitute is attached to it. It's like it's her last name. Rahab the prostitute. And you look at it and you go, eh, it feels a little harsh. (laughs) Can we just give the girl a little bit of a slack here? But it's done on purpose. It's done on purpose as a reminder. It's this beautiful reminder that even though Rahab's past was a mess, by His grace, God, who is rich in mercy, was delighted to wipe away that shame from Rahab. And that as Hebrews said earlier, that he is not ashamed to be called her God. In fact, he goes one step beyond that. The redemption of Rahab doesn't just bring her into neutral ground where she's forgiven, but it makes her family. You see, one of the next places you'll find Rahab mentioned is in the book of Matthew. And in Matthew chapter 1, which we'll come to in a couple days in our Bible reading plan, it's a chapter we usually just breeze through. But it's a chapter that shows Rahab's name in the lineage of Jesus. She is David, King David's great-great-grandmother. That God delights in taking prostitutes and making them family. And do you know why that is such good news for us? Because it's really tempting to look down your nose at Rahab, isn't it? Here's the problem. We are a room full of Rahabs. We are a room full of people. The prophet Hosea says that we have committed spiritual prostitution. That we have run to the other gods and forsaken the one true God. And so the fact that Rahab the prostitute is brought into the family of God by faith and throwing herself at the mercy of God is really good news for you, and it's really good news for me. Because Jesus said when he was on earth, he said, I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. Romans 5 reminds us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And as we sit at the foot of the cross, as we get our eyes off of ourself, our lack of faith or our amazing faith, whatever you might feel in that moment, as we get our eyes off of ourself, 
off of, the eyes, off of the perception of those around us, and we fix our eyes on Jesus, and we go back to Him and say, Jesus, what do you say about us? What do you think about me? We get His answer over and over again. He says, I know you fully, and I love you. I love you so much that in order to satisfy the righteous demands against sin, I came. Holiness, love, results in the fear of the Lord, and perfect love casts out fear, the bad fear. So whatever today is holding you back, whatever fear is keeping you from that life of obedience, true obedience, which is motivated by faith, filled with joy, whatever it is that's keeping you, whether that's expressing itself in terror of God, feeling like you're never enough and God's always angry and disappointed with you, or whether that is disregarding God's commands because actually the approval of your peers is more important. Whichever bad fear it is in your life right now, the invitation is to repent of that, to turn away from that and look to Christ. Look to Christ. And we confess, like Rahab does, that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth below. And church, what if we believe that? What if we believe that the almighty, powerful God of the universe is for you? And if he is for you, why would we fear man? And if he really is for us, we, have, we don't have to be afraid of him. He loves you. If we believe that statement more and more, what we will find in ourselves is there's no reason why we couldn't give sacrificially because God owns this whole world and everything in it, and He will provide for you. Why not step out and have that conversation with a neighbor? Because if they reject you, Psalms reminds us that even if my mother and father reject me, the Lord will never. We have nothing to fear. And as we fix our eyes on Christ, we'll find ourselves amazed at His holiness and in all of His love, which is the right fear of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, you have shown us what real love is. It's not that we love you, but it's that you love us and sent your son for us. You loved us first, and your perfect love is driving out the bad fear in us. And Lord, do more of that and replace it with the right fear, the awe, the respect, the love, and the holiness of, of you, God. Fill us with an amazing sense of your greatness and your greatness that you use to show grace towards us. And by your grace, make us a people that are eager to joyfully obey you and follow you into whatever it is that you tell us to do. Lord, may our answer be yes to you before you even finish your command. We want to be a people who follow you with our whole heart. Make that true in us by the power of your Spirit not just for your glory or for our good, but for the sake of the world that is watching. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.